So, as we start this morning, I, I, I'm going to ask you a question, which is kind of common for me to do, right? It's kind of what we do consistently. Have you ever, have you ever had somebody help you with something, and you kind of wish they hadn't tried to help you with something? Huh? Wow, that was far too well received. <laughs> Or maybe maybe you've been on the other end of that. You tried to help somebody, and uh, you just made a mess of things. Kids all the time, right? I want to I want to help you. I want to help you, and you're going, yeah, okay. I want to help you cook, mom. Okay. And there's biscuit dough all in the floor, and up noses, and in hair, and, you know. Sometimes we can uh, we can actually make things worse when we try to help, can't we? Far too often, um, try to get the jump on something. I'm going to really surprise mom and dad. I'm going to get this done. They come and they're like, oh, no. Let me help. And sometimes we just don't have the ability, the wisdom, the patience to help. Let me, let me break some, I don't know if you see this as good or bad news, but let me break some news to you this morning. You can't do everything. You're not designed to. And we see that especially in light of spiritual things, right? We've talked a lot this morning about the... We've sung a lot and we've talked a lot about the work that Jesus did to save us. The gift that the Father gave us in our salvation. How He sent His Son to do the work. Now let me ask you, straight up, everybody here, what can we do to help Jesus save us? Be careful. We are human beings, aren't we? Well, we are in Matthew chapter 12 again this morning for the last time. Um, We're going to finish Matthew 12 this morning. And just to give you a quick overview of what's going to happen the next few weeks, uh, we're going to leave Matthew for basically the month of uh, December. We're going to focus on Advent, Christmas stuff in December. And the messages that we uh, speak and hear in December will be Advent and Christmas focused. So we're going to finish chapter 12, which again, I think timing-wise is just perfect. Um, because then we'll come back to Matthew either the last week of December or the first week of January. So we're going to kind of draw a line here this morning. And really it's kind of drawn for us at the conclusion of this chapter. So if you would please stand. We're going to read Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 50. And I promise you, this is weird stuff. But good weird, but weird. Uh, I was not ready for what the Lord had for us in this passage, what this passage actually means, because we are those who do believe that these are the very words of God. And when God spoke them, He meant one thing. We can maybe interpret things a certain way to help us in our lives, but God meant one thing when He recorded these words through the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's the meaning that we're looking for this morning. 
Not, what does this mean to me? What did God say? What did God mean? And how does that affect me? That's what we're looking at this morning as we read the very words of God. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, there are hidden in your word treasures. And your word tells us to pray that you would open up our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak, be heard, convict, draw, build up this morning as only you can. We put our faith and our hope in you, Holy Spirit, to do what needs to be done here in each individual and in us corporately. We need your help. We ask for it and receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, just reading that, is that weird? That's weird, y'all. Those are some weird words we just read. And we're going to dig in. I think we're going to... Again, I've, just, I've been surprised. I've really been looking at this passage for a couple of weeks, but uh, this week I've been very surprised at... At, at what this, what's going on here. So we're going to start in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Now, I'm not going to say this anymore, but that's weird, right? What is going on here? Have you ever read this and went, now what? Spirit, unclean spirit, waterless places seeking rest? What, what is this all about? And let me just say, I don't know for sure. Okay, Jesus is quite a bit smarter than I am. The Holy Spirit perfectly inspired Matthew to write these words just as they are. And there is some uncertainty here, but I think in setting context, which is key, we're going to see wondrous things out of this word this morning. So, so context is so important in all of Scripture, and, and I would say especially, but this passage really illustrates that force. If you took this passage out of context, starting with this verse, man, you could really mess some stuff up. And this context, again, is, uh, is what we've been looking at through chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew. So that's, that's been a few months that we've been in chapters 11 and 12. Um, but what we've seen in chapters 11 and 12 as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, which is portraying Jesus as the King of the Jews, as the Messiah, as the one who would sit on David's throne and reign forever. In chapters 11 and 12, we've seen a mounting opposition to Jesus and His ministry to the point that we literally saw the scribes and the Pharisees are plotting His death. It, it, it's reached that point where they're like, we've got to kill this guy. That's our only option. 
And so as we reach the end of this section in chapter 12, before we move on to chapter 13, Jesus is giving some clear teaching on the dangers of the current age and what will follow it. And then He contrasts that with the goal and aim of the kingdom that He has been announcing. And this will stand, His kingdom will stand in stark contrast to the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And these last two vignettes here in chapter 12 will highlight that powerfully. So, contextually, here's what transpired specifically in chapter 12. Jesus was seen healing and delivering a man. He was blind, mute, and demon-oppressed. And after He healed this man, He was accused by the scribes and Pharisees of working in the power of Satan. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, they said. Which, uh... Jesus said, that makes zero sense. Okay, that, that can't be true because a house divided against itself can't stand. And if Satan casts out Satan by Satan, how will his kingdom stand? So he didn't just contradict them and say that's impossible. He also condemned them for their accusation and gave eternal consequences to them for their accusation. He said literally, what you're saying, what you're doing can never be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Because you are attributing the activity of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And you'll never be forgiven for that. What horrifying words, right? And then Jesus went on to show the impossibility of their accusations, the eternal consequences of them. And then last week in verses 38 through 42, the Pharisees responded to Jesus' signs by asking for what? A sign. So Jesus is working all these signs. The Pharisees say, we would see a sign from you. Just Yeah, one more, right? And Jesus said the only sign that they will get is the sign of the prophet Jonah who was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. Jesus says that he, like Jonah and the great fish, will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth forecasting his resurrection. And then Jesus says that the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment against this unbelieving generation because both the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba worshipped God as a result of seeing much less than those of Jesus' time had seen. Something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon was in their midst and they would not believe. Not only would they not believe, they would say it was demonic. So then now we come to verse 43. And I want to read it in context of last week just to see it clearly because it it just takes takes a turn here, right? So we're going to read 38 through 43. So last week and the beginning of this week. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Huh? So yeah, those fish were pretty. I've been to the desert. What? What's the connection here? 
I mean, that is, that is an odd transition, right? It seems like Jesus does like a 90-degree left turn and goes off on a tangent, but it, He does not. Jesus speaks nothing by accident. Jesus doesn't have spaghetti thoughts like you ladies tend to have that just all run together, right? <laughs> and so I mentioned what happened yesterday, and you tell me what happened in sixth grade, because in your mind, it's all connected, Amen. Right? That's true. Don't you shake your head at me. (laughs) Jesus, don't do that. He says this on purpose. So what's the connection here? Well, again, we need to see both sides of the context. So with that in mind, I'm going to read verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. We have to take this teaching as one thought basically, in order to get the meaning right, I think. Jesus had said in verses 38 through 42, He had condemned this generation using Jonah and Solomon as reference points as the Queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh would rise up in judgment of this generation in the judgment. This evil generation, He says here in verse 45. So the connection is what's going on in this generation, this evil generation. So this thought is direct, directly connected with what we saw last week. Jesus is showing what those who are witnessing His ministry and not believing Him, what they're bound for. And it ain't pretty. Jesus has already said in last week's passage that the, that, that generation would be condemned in the final judgment. But that's not the only judgment that will come upon them. There's a present judgment as well. So He gives this account of how demons operate. Now be careful here. This is immensely frightening if we see the full scope of what Jesus is saying here. And it's supposed to be. In describing this generation, those around Him who are disbelieving and accusing Him, Jesus says something monumental. He's describing this generation when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Now what's that about? Well, they had accused him of having a demon and working in the power of Satan. And now he's flipping that script and explaining that it is them, not him, who are demonically affected. Now, can you imagine? Now, you think you're a righteous, religious, pious, God-loving individual and the Son of God stands before you and says, you're demonically oppressed. No wonder they wanted to kill him. This had to just absolutely incense them. He is accusing his hearers, this generation, this evil generation, of being demonized. The religious elite, the most spiritual of the spiritual, the Pharisees, whose very name means separate, to indicate their disdain for the world and the sin associated with it. They were the ones who had demons. Now, why do I say that? Stay with me. Well, again, read the three verses. When the unclean spirit 
has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now follow the flow of thought. A demon goes out of a person. Why? Don't know. Was it driven out? Did it leave voluntarily? I'm not sure. But put this in the context of what's going on in Jesus' day, in His generation. Jesus is going around this little sliver of land called what we call Palestine, Israel, and He's healing every disease. And He's coming into contact with demons and He's telling them, Get out of here. He's driving out every demon that he faces. Nobody and nothing can stand before Jesus and oppose him. So imagine you're a demon at this time. Some of y'all, that's not hard to do, right? I'm just kidding. Some of y'all are mad at me, and if you're mad at me, I'm not talking to you specifically, okay? <laughs> now, but imagine you're a demon, and you're in the land of Palestine and Israel at the time of Jesus. How would you feel? You're hearing stuff. Um, the Son of God's here. What? The Son of God? The Messiah? Jesus? The Son? Yep, yep. He's, he's, uh, yeah, he just drove out some of our buddies and they're out there in dry water's places now. And uh, he's coming. And uh, he's, oh, I see him. I see him. We better get out of here. We better vacate the premises. Why? Because God's here. And we can't stand before God. They knew it. If you're going to cast us out, can you send us into those pigs pretty please? Sure. That's what kind of command Jesus had over demons. So I would think that the demons in this time and place were put on notice that Jesus was around and thus they were helpless and powerless in this time to stand against Him. They knew Him. They knew who He was. They knew what He was capable of. He had commanded them from eternity past. And I would guess that many of them packed their proverbial bags and went away for a while, hoping for the storm to pass and things to get back to normal. Well, when they leave a person, whether voluntarily or not, it says that they go into dry, waterless places looking for rest, but they find none. Now, I don't know how to interpret that any different than what it says. I think it means exactly what it says. Where did Jesus meet Satan for his temptation? Out in the wilderness, right? And not not woods wilderness, desert wilderness, dry, waterless places. That's where Satan came and, and found Jesus there. That's where Jesus went to confront Satan, really. So these demons are like vacating and, and they're leaving and they're going whether, whether Jesus is commanding them to leave or they're going voluntarily. And they're going to dry, waterless places. Seems that the devilish types are drawn there. But there's no rest to be found there. Demons really seem to need some sort of host to manifest themselves. They can't find any rest. They're like, ah, I can't express myself. I can't do the, the, the bad stuff I want to do because I need a host. I need a body. So they're out there in dry waterless places, no rest. You know what? I'm going to go back to that person I was in. I'm going to go back to my house. Imagine that, that a demon would call somebody their house. I'm going to go back there. And when they show up, finds that the home, the person, is empty, swept, and put in order. You need to see that. 
That's what it says in verse 44. When it comes, it finds the house, the person, empty, swept, and put in order. Now what's that mean? Well, it gives the impression to me that the person's kind of gotten their life together. Right? They're doing better. They've straightened up. They're flying right. They don't have that demonic presence that's, you know, trying to exert itself. And they're, they're doing all right. Things are swept and put in order. But that's not all they are. Look at that first word. It finds the house what? Empty. Nobody is living there. There's a vacancy sign flashing. Well, this demon sees an opportunity, not just for a place to stay, but for a life to wreck. Demons, like their leader, come only to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. And this demon sees a chance to destroy this person that he calls home. So he doesn't just move back in. He goes and finds seven other demons who are more evil than he is. And they, all eight of them, go make their home in this person. How do you think that turns out? Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. One demon is bad. Do the math. Eight demons is much, much worse. But again, note how Jesus ends this statement. So also will it be with this evil generation. Wow. Jesus is saying that the demons are on the run with him around, but he isn't going to be around forever. And when he's gone, the demons will return. And what will they find when they come back? These people have cleaned themselves up. They're doing better. Maybe they're even living right. Maybe they even became religious. Maybe they even became Pharisees. But since they didn't believe in Jesus... Since they didn't recognize Jesus as God and their Messiah, they will lean on their own understanding. They will trust their own efforts. And they'll be a lot like scribes and Pharisees who practice their religion to be seen by men and to get their applause from men. And actually what's going on, they're not getting better. There's actually a gaping void in their lives. And that void will be filled with the demon who used to live in that generation in them along with seven of his most rowdy buddies. And that generation will be in much worse shape than they were before Jesus came. That evil generation. Jesus chided the Pharisees. He said, you cross land and sea to make one proselyte And when you go and you make that proselyte, you make him twice the son of hell that he was before you came and got him. And that's exactly what he's saying here. This evil generation. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus is driving the last nail in the coffin. The rejection is complete. The course has been plotted and their condemnation is sure. This generation he is referring to, this evil generation, has sown the wind and will reap the whirlwind. To use the wording of Hosea 8-7. And their doom is certain. They have rejected God and His plan and will suffer present and eternal consequences. God came and they missed Him. God came and they called Him the devil. And so the devil will be their master and their accuser and they will share in His eternal punishment. Why? What did they miss? 
What did they do that led them to this place? Well, the last part of Matthew 12 shows us exactly what they missed. And it's a call to relationship, not religion. Verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking, this is the next verse after that evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now if you were following along up here, you might have saw something peculiar. We go from verse 46 to verse 48. And if you've got an ESV, the number goes from 46 to 48. And there's a little footnote that says some manuscripts add verse 47, which says someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. And the oldest manuscripts don't have that verse in them. So the ESV omits it. Again, not a problem. If that wrecks your faith, you need, we need to talk, okay? That that one verse, which is same, basically the same thing, is omitted. That's not, a, that's not a crisis of faith, I hope. If it is, we need to talk, seriously. That's not a big deal. A scribe could have added it for clarity later. Um, it could have been that it was in some manuscripts and not others. It, it doesn't matter. It affects nothing in our doctrine. It affects nothing in our belief system. But that, I, I, think, I think I owe you that explanation as to why it goes from 46 to 48. It doesn't affect the passage at all. It doesn't change anything. Except just as somebody actually said to him, not just a general, hey, your mom and brothers are here, but somebody actually said, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. So, back to the passage. Now, this is pretty interesting. Now, remember, Matthew is not randomly piecing words or events together. He's making a case. What's he doing? He's trying to prove, trying to make sure that everybody understands that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the King of the Jews and the whole earth. That's what he's doing in his gospel. So again, context and placement are key here. Why this account at this time? Well, Jesus had just pointed out the curse of those who clean themselves up, whose life is void of any other influence than their own trying harder to do better attitude after their demon was gone. Their second state, he says, is worse than their first. Eight demons and seven of them are worse and meaner than their first buddy that was there at the beginning. And they're much worse off after they got themselves cleaned up. It's a condemnation of the morality angle. The scribes and the Pharisees prided themselves in being squeaky clean. Jesus says when their demons return after He's gone, they're going to be in a mess. So what's the other option? What does Jesus call people to? Well, the simple answer is relationship which is exactly what we see in this section. So look at the event that ends the chapter. Jesus is speaking to what Matthew calls the people. It would seem to me that reference is to the crowds who are consistently around him. Everywhere he went, there's a crowd around him. Nothing definitive here as to who those people are, but Jesus is talking to some people. And while he's talking to them, his mother and brothers come and are standing outside, which implies that Jesus is talking to a group of people inside somewhere. Well, as he's talking to the people inside, his mom and brother show up and are asking to talk to him. 
Now, we do not stand for the faulty interpretation that these are Jesus' cousins. Because some people say that. The Roman Catholic Church would teach that these are not Jesus' brothers, that that word can mean cousins as well. These are Jesus' half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the son of Mary and Father God. And these are His half-brothers. His mom and His brother show up. Now, why? What do they want? They want to speak to Him. Makes sense, I guess. Maybe they just wanted to talk to Him. Maybe they're worried about Him because, again, the opposition is mounting, right? They've probably caught whispers of, hey, Pharisees want to kill Jesus. Not sure why they're there. But we do know from other passages that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Him during His pre-resurrection life and work. Let me show you that. John chapter 7, verses 2-5. through Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This was a different occasion altogether. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So this is not, Hey, we want to talk to you, Jesus, because we just love your teaching. We know that for sure, because his brothers didn't believe he was who he said he was. The Bible tells us that. For not even his brothers believed in him. Either way, Jesus' blood family, his mom and his half-brother show up and they want to talk to him. And then verse 48 starts with the word, but. But. He replied to the man. So we know how that goes, right? So they want to talk to him, but. Jesus says to the guy who told him about his mom and his brothers, wanting to talk to him, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Now Jesus does not have amnesia. He doesn't have selective memory here. He's not asking who these people are, who, the ones who are asking for him. He knows his mom and his brothers. And then in verses 49 and 50 he says, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now wow. Let's explore this just a bit, right? Jesus your family wants to talk to you. Who's my family? And he stretches out his hand and points to his disciples and says that amazing statement, Here are my mother and my brothers. Wow. You guys hearing this? Who's my family? These folks here who believe me, who've trusted in me, these disciples of mine, these guys who have walked with me, learned from me, been sent out by me, were suffering with him. They are the ones that Jesus considers to be his mother and his brothers. Now what's that mean? Sister Sledge said it. We are family. I got all my sisters and me. You didn't know that song was biblically inspired, did you? Neither did I. The pirates knew. The Pittsburgh pirates was true. Hmm. These guys, my disciples, they are my true family. Wow. For he says in verse 50, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Relationship. That's what the kingdom of the heavens 
That's what the kingdom of the Messiah is all about. Jesus came to earth to draw people into relationship with Himself. The language of the New Testament is Abba. It's Father, it's Son, it's Brothers, Sisters, Family, Bride, Groom, and words like this. The scribes and the Pharisees are focused on rules, regulations, prohibitions, do's, don'ts, and such. And if you meet their standards... If you don't meet their standards, if you don't agree with them, you are disgusting, you are unclean, you are dirty. And if you do agree with the scribes and Pharisees and do what they do, you're accepted. But even then there's competition and suspicion because they're trying to elevate and promote themselves. But Jesus and His kingdom are about His Father, His brothers, His family. And here in this episode, Jesus shows the difference in the two kingdoms by pointing to His relationship with His disciples. These are my people. This is my family. So now let's compile these two accounts that we've looked at today and get a clearer picture from looking at them together. Why would Matthew put these together at this point and in this section about rising accusation and opposition with these two accounts? Because 11 and 12 are about opposition and rejection and and coming persecution. And Matthew ends chapter 12 like this. It would seem that here at this pivotal point of the life and work of Jesus, we see a clear juxtaposition between the kingdom of the enemy and the kingdom of heaven. Contrasting between self-righteousness and true righteousness. Between the activity of demons and the working of God. And what we're going to see from this point on, when we come back to Matthew in a month or so, as we move into chapter 13, Jesus is going to purposefully focus on those who will listen to Him. On those who will follow Him, who will relate to and with Him. And that's going to look much different than working within the Jewish religious system. He's going to make it a point to leave those who oppose Him in the dark with His teaching. He will focus on His disciples even more intently and while there will be miracles and signs, they will be secondary to Him preparing His men for His death, burial, and resurrection which He's forecasted already but will intensify His references to. Jesus is going to do what it takes to grow His family both in breadth and in depth. Now let me give you a quick example of what I'm talking about here. Once you get into Matthew 13... Matthew 13 is the chapter where Jesus teaches, preaches what some call the mystery parables of the kingdom. Okay? And it says He doesn't speak to the people except in parables. And the disciples come... Well, let me just read it. Uh, Matthew 13, 10 through 17. Then the disciples came to, and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they've closed, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, he says to his disciples, for they see. 
and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hmm. Jesus tells His men that He's going to speak to them in a way that He will not speak to those who are not His. He says that those who are not His will not receive what He has to offer and that even what they do have will be taken away from them. That's the type of work that Jesus will be doing going forward. The offers have been made leading up to now and in what we saw today and now and what we've seen in the past, the offers from here on out will be less and less and He will be teaching His men more and more. The relationships will be closer and closer with those who are in the family and the relationships will be more and more estranged with those who are not His family. And so the end of this chapter is a very big step in the life and ministry of Jesus, a pretty clear dividing line in what He is doing and how He is relating to those who are His and those who are not. So here in our passages today... Jesus shows the clear difference between His family relationships and His relationship with those who are working to just clean themselves up. And it's literally the difference between the work of Christ and the work of demons. So, now we ask ourselves, what about application? How does this apply to us today? We've got three R's. A pirate's application for you today. R. Every time we do ours, I'm going to say that, just so you know. I, I'm, never, I'm never going to not say that when the application points start with R. Three R's. Repair, relationship, and reborn. The first application point. What do you need to do in light of what we've read today? What do I need to do in light of what we've seen today? First application point is repair. And you know what I'm not going to tell you? To repair yourself. Nobody, nobody is called to clean themselves up. In our passage today, Jesus said that when a demon leaves a man and is gone a while, the man he left is clean and in order. Then the demon brings seven of his more rowdy friends with him to take up residence in the neat and orderly place. And the man is worse off than he was before when the demon was in him originally. This mindset of cleaning ourselves up is actually inviting to demons. You're trying harder to do better is a vacancy sign to demons. Your efforts to help are actually hurting you. And I'm speaking specifically right now to lost people. Well, I'll, I need to get some things cleaned up, then I'll go to God. I'll get myself in a better place and then I'll approach God. Then I'll get into church. And you're saying, bring seven of your rowdiest friends and settle in me when you say I'm going to clean myself up and make myself better so that I can be presentable to God. You're actually preparing an offering for demons when you do that. The Bible is not a self-help manual. Jesus is not a self-help guru. Your help is hurting you. 
Your help is making a mess of the situation. Your efforts to make yourself better are leading you to a worse place. A demonic place. You're like, nah, that's not what it says. No, that's exactly what it says. Now, believers, be careful. We do the same thing. We're saved. Our sins are forgiven. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. And then we sin. And what do we think? God's mad at me. I got to do better. I'll try harder to do better. I'll kind of, I won't go to God because I'm sure He's upset with me. So I'll do a little better, then I'll go to God. Can demons affect you as a believer? No. You can fall into their traps here and there, but they're not going to live in you. They're not going to move in you. But I promise you, your efforts to help are causing problems. Causing way more problems than they're fixing because they're not fixing any problems. It's not about your self-effort. It's not about you trying harder to do better. It's not about you cleaning yourself up so that God won't be mad at you. This table shows us exactly what God thinks of our sins. And exactly what He did with our sins. The body was broken. The blood was poured out to take away your sins. The wrath of God fully satisfied. And your efforts to make it better, your efforts to help, your efforts to add to it, are just causing more problems. Paul says it this way. Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'll just stay away from that stuff. I won't do it. I'll just, I won't even turn my head toward it because if I look at it, I'm going to want it. And if I want it, I know I shouldn't. If I want it, I know I shouldn't. I'm going to try it. And if I try it, I'm going to feel bad and God's going to be mad at me. It's destructive. It's not the way of the Spirit of God for you to just try harder to do better. No value. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, do not feel. That's you trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit in you and you can't do it. You can't help Him there. Now you've got a part to play. We'll get there. Paul says this to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, interesting, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sick. Let me just say this. People talk about you shouldn't say mean things to people who are false teachers. Liars. Consciences are seared. They're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. It's black and white. And then verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You can sit down Thursday and eat. Now be careful. Don't sin. But you receive it with thanksgiving. There are people who would forbid that. 
You've got to be mean to your body. You've got to deny yourself. And you do have to deny yourself. But doing it from the outside in is never going to work. It's never going to work. Forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from foods. It's never going to work. Trying harder to do better to clean yourself up is never going to work, believer or unbeliever. You are not called to clean yourself up. So quit the repair work. Quit it. Stop it. Or I'm going to put you... That's repair. Second is relationship. Again, we can't come out of this passage today and not talk about relationship. We are called to a family relationship with the omnipotent God of the universe. A relationship. We've referred to this a few times in our journey through Matthew, but how did Jesus teach His disciples to pray, right? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. And that was scandalous in the mind of the Jews. God is your Father? The High and Holy One who dwells in inapproachable light? Your Father? Yes! Jesus called His disciples His mother and brothers and sisters. These are my mother and my brother and my sisters because they do the will of my Father. I don't know what your view of Christianity has been, is, or will be, but I can say this today. God sent Jesus Christ to earth to initiate a relationship with you. Now, I'm not a big proponent of God just wants a personal relationship with you. God's preparing a bride for His Son. And that's us. That's the church. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that God is calling us to. Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... 28, very famous. What about 29? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that... He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many what? Brothers. That's relationship. The whole purpose of everything that God was doing was so that Jesus the Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is also where I'd speak to that notion that if you were the only person to ever believe in Jesus, He'd have died for you. No, He wouldn't. Many brothers. Many, brother, this personal relationship idea. Again, no, this is not about a personal relationship. It's about a corporate relationship of the church to Christ, the church to the Father, the church to the Holy Spirit, the firstborn among many brothers. Hebrews 2. It's a little longer passage. Stay with me. For it was fitting that He, Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christian, Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother. Not because you've cleaned yourself up, but because of what he's done. Because he is a merciful high priest who endured what we endured, suffered what we suffer, so that he can say, I get it. I understand. And I'm going to help you because I am your brother. Wow. Oh, I'm afraid we yawn at that. So the application point here is understand that ultimately everybody in this room is in some kind of relationship with God. If we are His, God is our Father, Christ is our brother, the Holy Spirit is our helper. If you're not His, you are His enemy. And the Scriptures say that you are of your father, the devil. But God just loves us all the same, right? I'm afraid not. You said, what was this father of the devil thing? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word, which sounds a lot like what he said in Matthew 13 that I read. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You are in one family or the other this morning. Either Almighty God is your father or the devil is your father. And if the devil is your father, guess what kind of relationship you have with God? You are his enemy. You are made in his likeness and you reflect his glory in that likeness and you are his enemy. And your efforts to maybe fix that yourself just sets you up as twice the son of hell that you were before. And yet, God stands and calls us to relationship with Him. So what have I got to do about this relationship? Last application point. Reborn. You must be born again. There is one entryway into the family of God and it's by the new birth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. John 3, 3 through 8, he says, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Some of y'all might be asking the question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water being the natural birth, spirit being the new birth, the supernatural birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How do I get born again, preacher? Spirit's got to do that, y'all. You don't clean yourself up. Make yourself better as a candidate petitioning, Hey, save me, because I'm pretty good. I'm pretty clean. I mean, I swept my house, I put it in order. So you should save me, because I'm pretty good. It's the Spirit's work. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship that you're born into supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, surely I've got to do something. Be careful. For neither circumcision, Paul says, counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Not your efforts, but God's work. Okay, so... Uh... First Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what have I got to do to be born again? Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, preacher, you ain't answering my question. What have I got to do... To be born again. I am answering your question. It's the Spirit's work. What have I got to do? It's the Spirit's work. The Spirit convicts you. The Spirit draws you. The Spirit breathes new life in you. And then you proclaim your faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So I got to believe? Yep, you got to believe. Good luck trying to make that happen yourself. It's all God's work. God adopts you into His family, and then you express faith and compliance to who He is and to the relationship that He wants with you. So, what have I got to do, preacher? You got to believe. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ was the only Son of God who came in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, took your sins upon His body on the cross and paid the penalty for those sins as the wrath of God was poured out upon my sins, your sins in His body. And the wrath that should have been mine, Christ absorbed And you place your faith in His perfect work. And you look to God and you call Him Abba, Father. 
And you praise Him for adopting you, for breathing His supernatural life into you. And then you go live like the devil because nothing else matters, right? No. First Peter 1, 22-25 and we'll be done. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, this is your part after you're born again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Believe the gospel. Trust in the finished work of Christ and you will be saved. And once you are saved, you will praise Him for saving you and you will purify yourself according to the power that He provides through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people. No more talk of this, I'll try harder to do better. I'll try to help God do this work. No, you won't. God will do the work. He will get the glory. Or it's going to be the demons who are pleased. Let's pray. God, I think it's pretty safe and easy to say that we don't want to please demons. We don't want to do the work of demons. We we do not want to welcome demons into our lives, whether we're saved or unsaved. But God, this morning, this afternoon now, God, would you draw people? Would you save people? Would you breathe supernatural life into lost, dead, enemy people? Only you can do that. And when you do it, God, only you get the glory for it. That's our desire as your people who are in right relationship with you because of the finished work of Christ. Those of us who call you Father, may we not get in the way of the process either, trying harder to do better, to fix ourselves up so that you might love us a little bit more. God, the proclamation over the Son of God is the proclamation that is over us now because we are in Him and we are your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. I can't fix that. I can't make that any better than it is. And all we can say is thank you. And may that thanks come from a purified heart. Looking to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We trust you and we thank you. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.